Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. It's another edition of Open Trailer Podcast. Thank you for checking it out. My name is Andy Austin. I'm your host. And when sketching out the idea for what eventually became this project, I wanted to make sure that we didn't leave many stones unturned. And sometimes you can tell a story, or let's just say you have story A, exhibit A, and you ask 10 different people about story A. Well, you're going to get 10 different versions, and some of the facts overlap, but in the case of Dan Wolf, there are certain things that we've talked about on this podcast before that are from a completely different perspective, and I picked up a few things that even, I mean, I thought I knew. And when I say the name Dan Wolf, some know it, others don't. He isn't necessarily a household name on the level of, say, an A-list stock car driver. Uh, But, man, he's lived seven or eight different lives within racing and has a ton of great stories. And I I really believe you're going to enjoy these next few episodes. Dan runs the gamut. You may have heard about Norwood Arena, but have you ever talked to somebody who raced at Norwood Arena in Massachusetts? Uh, Yeah, big story there. Also, that's where his Dave Dion connection comes in. And it's a friendship that has lasted a lifetime. Some cool stories. Also, Dr. Dick Bergeron's in there and Tom Curley. I mean, how can you how can you be in a large role in the 80s and not have a Tom Curley story? Well, Dan, uh, before podcasts, there were weekly racing shows. Dan had one of them. Matter of fact, probably the most successful one in New England. It was the Main Motorsport Report. And uh, Dan gets into some of that. And full disclosure... Whether Dan realizes it or not, he had a major impact on the paths that I eventually took in life, both uh, racing and in radio. I grew up a listener of the Maine Motorsport Report. My mom was a huge fan. She would win a contest. I, I I forget what the heck she won. But anyway, we ended up going to the radio station to pick up the prize because they were too cheap to mail it. Now being on the radio side, I totally get that. But it was there that I met a few people who became mentors to me. Now, I never ended up working there, but certainly the seed was planted, and without the Maine Motorsport Report and Dan Wolf and and that entire uh, interaction, I mean, who knows where uh, where life would have gone. So I certainly owe him that. And as much as I, I don't like to get personally involved in the person's podcast. They are the subject, after all. I think that itself is pretty neat, so I wanted to put it out there. Hey, uh, thank you for your support of Open Trailer Podcast through Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Podcast. And this entire thing doesn't happen without the Main Vintage Race Car Association. Uh, this podcast benefits them as we continue to preserve the history of racing in the state of Maine. So Dan, Dan has a lot to say. And let's get right to it. Stage number one of Dan Wolf on Open Trailer Podcast. No one in my family raced. There was, you know, I wasn't lucky enough to be a, a second generation or third generation racer like some of these people. There was no one who did it. 
But my high school gym teacher was the flying school teacher from Woburn, Massachusetts, Mr. Mike Murphy. Oh, no kidding. And I had Mike for gym as a freshman and as a senior. And we started going to Hudson Speedway, uh, Star, and the Pines to follow the races. At that point, Mike Murphy had a homemade cut-down Super Modified. Yeah, the M3. No, car number 28 preceded all of that. Wow. In those days, there wasn't so many forms of entertainment. So entertainment was you worked on your race car Monday and Tuesday, and then the guys all came over on Wednesday and Thursday, and if you took a notion, everyone jumped in the car, and you went to go and visit other guys who were working on their race cars. We would drive up to Tewksbury to Eddie Whitcomb's, and we would go here and there and the next place to these different people that we all knew. And I loved cars, and I loved... I was a born huckster. The the first thing I said was, do you want to buy my old diaper? Uh, I just wanted to sell you something. <laughs> and I, I had 19 cars while I was in high school, and I made money on all but two. Yeah, but I had great fun doing that, and that leads us to something that was important. There was not a lot of manufactured everything in the 60s and 70s. So if you had a few things, you were a cool car guy. If you had a tripod so you could and, and a and a come along hmm. or chain come along that you could take motors out of cars, you were a cool dude automatically. Because everybody had a car with a blown motor and if we could just unbolt it and someone could lift it out, we could get one in the junkyard and put it back in. Right. And then if you had a welder and a set of torches, you could build everything. And that leads us to my early experiences with open trailers. It was 1969. We knew we were building a race car. Mike Murphy was helping us, and we were gathering parts and collecting and getting started. And I had bought a welder. That was important, a Lincoln. And uh, so we were there, and we, we wanted to get into racing. And we had collected up a beautiful 57 Chevy Bel Air Coupe, um, bought a motor, um, at that point, Dick Bergman was not driving. He 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 was he had a driver for his modified. He had an NASCAR modified, and he lived just over the Wuben line in Burlington on Peach Orchard Lane, and he so he was kind of a local guy, and we bought a really hot 350 that they had done at Plaza Machine, but those NASCAR guys, if if you use the motor so many times and everything, they just you know they they. They spent a lot of money. So when we say NASCAR guys, are we talking the Grand Nationals? Are we talking Modifieds? Are we the, talking weekly NASCAR? At that point in racing in New England was in, there was kind of a Mason-Dixon line that went through Woburn and, <laughs> and across the top of Massachusetts. Yeah. Because if you went north, you got Hudson and the Pines and... Star and those were all under the influence of Charlie Elliott and uh, of of uh, the New England Super Modified Association and all of that. And mm-hmm. so that was one way to go racing. When you came to Maine, you got dirt tracks and you had Oxford, which was really a, a real standout thing because it was kind of NASCAR-y. Even right. though the, the local cars at Oxford in those days were all local divisions, Bob Bear was running uh, NASCAR Cup Races. Yeah, he had a couple in the mid-60s there. Right, from 67, uh, 6, 7, 8. They mm. ran three, uh, the main 100 or the main 300, whatever. It was mm. It was uh, 
a time. But when you went south from Woburn, you had Norwood Arena, which was a NASCAR track. You had Thompson, hmm. Connecticut. Uh, you had Stafford Springs, Connecticut. And, you, and it was just out the, the Mass Pike, and you could get out into New York to the tracks that ran the NASCARs there. And the divide was super modifieds north and cut downs, mm. and south was the coupe modifieds and the NASCAR rules. So, and the big money was south because when you were dealing with people from Massachusetts and Connecticut, um, our first year, we built a 57 Chevy and ran the first late model NASCAR division in New England. It was the Tiger Division at Norwood. And the Tiger Division at Norwood was a kind of a cool thing because Carl Merrill had come up with this idea that in even though everyone loved modifieds in that area and modifieds were the the coupes were the big deal um, people were looking to see later model cars because those were 1930s bodies and this was 1970 so a 36 Ford was a really old car something that the newer fan could relate to so he wanted to relate to that so he came up with this tiger division and that name because Carl Merrill uh, I think went to Claremont and was around even the uh, the uh, American Canadian Tour up at their tracks in Vermont used the name Tiger Division mm. and it was an interesting late model class I have to start by saying I got no instructions from anybody I just got this really nice fast car and ran into everything wow. that, that didn't move so you raced at Norwood right so I have only read about it in Dick Bergeron's book um, I've seen pictures of it. It looks amazing, the way that the crowds would draw there. Can you give us a little picture on what racing at Norwood okay, was like? Norwood Arena was was an aberration as stock car tracks come. It was built in 1948 for 49, and the original building permit for the clubhouse was $105,000, which was a million dollars in 1948 money. Mm. And the track was put together it was gorgeous at that time in massachusetts whether or not you could have paramutual racing for horses and dogs with betting was a county decision so they had a county election and, and so this group of guys and doctors and uh who knows what kind of people from boston uh. invested a ton of money into this facility because they were hoping to have paramutual bet races of horses, dogs, or cats, or anything that you could bet on, because betting is a, is a very profitable right, thing. Yeah. And the good people of the county voted against that racing, that paramutual bet racing. So now we have to just do cars. But the place is a palace. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a, it's a, a quarter mile inside keeping in mind that Beechridge is a third. a third on the inside, and then there's a lot of aprons. Well, there was almost no grass at Norwood because it was almost all paved, and it was arguable if it really was a quarter mile on the inside. It was walled all the way around except the pit road, and um, it was very highly banked. So it's like Riverside or Manad. Well, Manadnock isn't all the way around. Right. It, it, was, it was a high bank little ring. And when you got, so I show up there, and I'm just a kid, hmm. and um, I was 19 maybe, and uh, we, you've got 
<laughs> Bugsy Stevens yeah. and and Schultz and, and all of these and iconic uh, modified guys are the main division. Okay, and some of these guys have uh, have got chrome plated everything, and so your eyes are wide open. And then in the the Tiger division. Um, you've got Les Rose, and you've got uh, uh, George Savory, and uh, Healy, and Bobby Glass, and a lot of guys that were late model guys for the, a long, long career, and a lot of guys who, who, as the 70s progressed, ended up coming to run the Getty Opens at Oxford. All were running at Norwood in these late models, and the one guy at Norwood that was the most fun was Dave Dion. Wow. And uh, when we talk about the, the, the great divide between Massachusetts and New Hampshire when it comes to racing on a financial basis, um, the best thing that Dave's brother Roger ever said to me was, he said, I can remember I was like a, a teenager. You remember back then. We showed up. Dave had raced a little bit before he went to Vietnam and then came back and raced afterwards. And he said before he went to Vietnam, they had a 46 Ford Coupe and they went to Norwood. And he said, we drove in there, barely could get there. Everything that we had, we had done at home. There was We, we just couldn't buy anything. We didn't run to the speed shop. You fixed something. Mm-hmm. And we drove in there, and everybody had these fancy trailers, and and the trailer had a better paint job than our race car, and <laughs> and they had fancy tools and chrome wheels, and and it was just you know our eyes popped. Well, fast forward into the late '60s, and one of the other things about Norwood that was was the great when I was there at Norwood, they had a street stock division, and there was a, a car that that the kid was just all over the street stock division. And that's all anybody talked about in the street stock division at Norwood, and that was Joey Carafas. And uh, but that street stock hobby division at Norwood, the the Norwood was a big feeder because it was hooked in with NASCAR. Now you take a guy, you're from Greater Sanford, <laughs> a, a guy who had yes. a summer camp and spent his summers. Hmm. Uh, in Shapley was the 1970 Daytona 500 winner, Pete Hamilton. And Pete went to Norwood in 1964 for his rookie race in the hobby division at Norwood, street stocks. And uh, I think a year or two before him was Don McTavish. And uh, Pete went from Norwood Arena rookie in 1964 to Daytona 500 champion in 1970. Um, Six years. Right. And and Don McTavish, if you're an American-Canadian tour person, their, their, uh, their character award is the Don McTavish Award. Um, Don McTavish was a hobby stock guy at... Uh, Norwood and they had at that point you had modifieds in NASCAR which were the 36 coupes like the the number 15 car that you see at Summerfest of of Carly Gaines that type of coupe the 85 Bobby Turner coupe car that uh, uh, 
Steve Levitt built. Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of coupes that were the predominant body in the in the 60s. And then their limited sportsman division was a 1932 style, the smaller square style cut down race car body with a motor that was limited to 292 cubic inches, which is, I think, a 60 over 283. I'll go with that. And so uh, uh, Don McCavish moved up into that right? and won a championship in that and then went on. And for a period in the 60s, Ernie Gahan was the national modified champion. And then for three or four straight years... The national modified NASCAR champions for four straight years were Bugsy Stevens and Don McTavish. And Don McTavish, unfortunately, one of the hardest pieces of video to watch was the 1969 Permatex 300 at Daytona. And Don McTavish had a Holman and Moody Mercury Comet and hit the wall and... uh, it tore the front of the car off and he was sitting there and another car hmm. hit him and he died instantly at the speedway and it was uh, it, it wasn't just that it was horrible it was the fact that um they played this graphic clip on TV which in those days was very uncommon for them to play something that graphic on TV and it was it was a stunner about racing to watch Don McTavish lose why, his life why why do you think that 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 happened why they not the accident itself but i mean why was tv allowing that as opposed to all of the different things that they wouldn't show normally right because this is during the this is during the vietnam conflict right and they weren't they weren't showing stuff like that on tv at the time but it it really goes back to the first time we went to the daytona 500 was in in 70 so i was still 19 and uh of course uh Years and years later, I, I interviewed Don McTavish, and I asked him if he understood uh, exactly how the crowd's reaction was um, when someone that they didn't know won the Daytona 500. And he said, I don't know, I was busy in Victory Lane. And I said, well, I was in the grandstand, and it was like the air went out of the place because it was like people were going, uh, that was really cool. Who is this guy? Oh, you mean Pete Hamilton won? Pete Hamilton. Okay. And when, when he when he won that race, the crowd kind of yeah. Uh, as soon as the race was over, they was kind of like looking at each other. Who is this guy? And of course, when we talk about Yankee versus Rebel, mm. that was very prominent then. And the the NASCAR Southern guys were not as receptive, but. Now in a day when we have these franchise things, which is, I to me, is like a taxi medallion for race cars. Um, the I look at this and I think, if you go back and look at all of those early Daytona things, if you had enough money, you could get a car and go to Daytona and try out. Hmm. Bob Greeley. Yep. Uh, uh, Dick Bear, Bob Bear's older brother, always had a car. the The last car that he had that was prominent was the the uh, car that uh, Jeff Bodine drove into the infield and ran into the radio car. Uh, and so, and that said, Oxford two hundred and fifty on the fender. But 
all of the guys that were good racers from New England would come in, but they did they they weren't welcome for the season. But at Daytona, it was anybody's show, and people would show up. Mario Andretti would show up. AJ Foyt would show up um, because this was the reverse Super Bowl. Let's have it first instead of last. And and, and it was a free-for-all. The Thursday qualifying race, now that we're in a world with with 40 starting positions and and sometimes having nobody else, all 40 cars in the race, um, there would be 50-plus cars in each of the 125-mile races. Hmm. And, and, you know, people just came with a car, and if you had a car and you could make speed in, in, on a time trial by yourself, you could race. And, of course, the first couple of times that I went to Daytona, the sad part of the 125 was, was that uh, people got killed in them. No. Because when you put 50 cars out on, onto a speedway at 175 miles an hour, and some of them with no experience, there's going to be trouble. Yeah, and zero safety precautions, but, really. That said, racing here in New England was a little bit different thing. And if you had a, a tripod, torches, and a welder, <laughs> then you were on your way to being in the race business. And it comes to the name of your podcast, the Open mm. Trailer Podcast. Let's bring it full circle. I have pictures of my original trailer in front of my house in Woburn, Massachusetts, my 57 Chevy race cars on it, my brother's brand new 70 Monte Carlo sitting in front of the house. And that trailer, as was a custom for making homemade trailers back then, mm. when the lift wore out in a service station and they replaced the lift, they had those drive-on lifts. Well, they were the perfect thing to make a race car trailer out of. So we bought the lift from from the Sunoco station on Main Street in Woburn, Massachusetts, Route 38. Lukey Spinazzolo was a cool guy. He had a 57 T-Bird. With a name like that, he has to be cool. Yeah, and it was Lukey's Sunoco and uh, made a trailer out of it with some old axles and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And that was how you got your homemade trailer. Hmm. And the fenders, you bought a 275-gallon oil drum that was worn out, and you cut it in half... And you had, right? You just put them over the tires. The thing rounded to go over your tires, and and that was your open trailer. And I had that trailer from '69 until uh, somewhere in the early '90s. Somebody finally really? talked me into selling it to them for hundred dollars because uh, I wasn't using it for anything. But that was how things were back then. People built their own things. People built their own race car. And you guys were your own sort of uh, promotion machine, too, because when you're driving around in an open trailer, I mean, that's attractive to a, to a young child. That's um... There is nothing quite like an open trailer on the road. And, uh, you know, I, as a matter of fact, when we were racing... When I was racing back in the 70s and 80s, um, we had reflectorized stickers, dealer stickers that said Damn Wolf Auto Sales. And I would always put a couple of those on every car. And any car that I sponsored, I put them on because when you were going home from the races and it was dark, 
The only thing you could see was this little sticker that said Dan Wolf Auto Sales on the back of the race car, but you knew you were following a race car. How much more did it cost for you to get those stickers that that shined than oh, regular boy. stickers? Yeah, I was being a real big shot at that time because it was like 28 cents for, for the plain one, and it was almost a dollar a piece for the reflectorized one. But so. you had the vision to do what you did. Right. I still, to this day... If I sponsor a street stock or, or any kind of car, if I can get them to put a, a 21st Century Motors dealer plate on the back of the, the car for mm. when they go home and the reflectorized stickers, uh, and, and people laugh at me, but this, what I do for a living and the racing, mm. they always collided with one another because I would get so busy at work, and I do like money, I'm not, I'm not against money, um, and I would get so busy at work that I, I just couldn't race. That was why I stopped driving. I just I was mm. so busy. And but when I stopped driving, it was actually a good day for, for Dale Earnhardt Jr. <laughs> Explain. Explain, please. I stopped driving because it was in the spring of eighty one. I drove into the one turn at Beach Ridge and someone nameless didn't lift. And sometimes you do a lazy spin in traffic, but it was on the opening lap or the second lap of the race, and it was really crowded. Mm. And I was starting fairly up front in the race because I had just moved up into the main feature from from the semi feature. And whoever was behind me didn't even lift and just turned me around. And I turned around as just in the middle of the one turn, right in the middle of the grave, facing traffic. And as traffic came, they kept getting closer and closer and closer <laughs> until two people ticked me, and then Rex Garrett hit me full on snout to snout, and it destroyed both cars. And when we had the 75th anniversary celebration here a few years ago, I talked to Rex, and he said, yeah, that pretty much made me decide I wasn't really going to be a driver because yeah. that was between the thud and the amount of work. And, of course, he's gone on to become immensely successful because not long after that, he switched over to the to the mechanical part of making race cars work instead of being the driver and has had a great successful career. But the, I have a picture somewhere of of us and the, both of the cars were completely destroyed and of course my oldest son had just been born and, mm. and I just looked at it and, and business was booming and I said you know maybe I'll take a year off and I'll build another race car and I, I never really got back to it on a full time basis and, so just to uh, for the casual fan I mean I know Rex and, and you know Rex and a lot of our listeners do but for those who don't he's been the main guy at DEI forever and his life may have taken a different direction following his father's footsteps if he didn't hit you head on in 1981 and I'm, I'm, and we laughed about it and yeah. said uh, on onward and upward but before when I got to Maine I got too busy mm. to race I in 70 I raced at at very unsuccessfully at Norwood. But I did make a friend for life. We were racing at Norwood, and Dave Dion was leading in the points. And I had, of course, crashed my car, uh, because that's what I did at Norwood. And uh, we didn't have enough parts to put the front end together because the tie rods were bent and whatever. Mm. And Paul Dion came over and said, uh, Dave blew his motor and he's running for points. If we fix your car up, can he run it so he can get some points and still try and stay in the championship? And I said, well, the front end's scrambled. 
And he said, well, how about it? And I looked at the guy that worked with me, Jody Bryan, and he said, sure, what, what's mm-hmm. the, you know, why not? And Paul turned and waved his hand, and Roger came across the parking lot, and he had all of the tie rods and center link and everything you'd need to put a front end under a 57 Chevy and the wrenches with him. Let's stop right there. Dion driving a Chevy. And it's a, it's a, it's a joke that Dave and I still mm. share because he ran that, that night at Norwood. Then he took it a couple of nights later to Stafford. And the car was mad fast, but they uh, broke the drive shaft and weren't able to, to take it out and, and really race with it. And up until the number 29 Tate Brothers Camaro mm. on the American-Canadian Tour in 88, I believe, was the year that he ran the Tate Brothers Camaro, that was the only Chevy race car that David ever driven. And that was a lifelong joke because uh, I, whenever I see Dave... We, we laugh about that, and they've turned out to be hmm. uh, real good friends. Back in the 80s, Walter Bell and I had made a, a dealer advertising type license plate that said Dion Brothers, or Dave Dion, racing two-time champion. It was when he was still two-time champion, and it was his T-Bird. And that was the when he first got the sponsorship with Berlin City. Are you talking about that license plate? I was able... I found one of those license plates in my things, mm. and Roger Dion was up, and I gave him the plate, and I said, I would like the signature of all the Dion brothers on this advertising plate. Roger collected that for me, and I, I had it in an envelope with a return envelope, and they shipped it back, and it is somewhere in the trailer at the Maine Vintage Race Car Association, a uh, an advertising license plate with the signature of all of the... Dion Dion Brothers. Brothers. Wow. And I like it so much because of what it represents and the mission, which is to preserve this stuff because after a while, no one remembers any of this. And uh, one of my racing accomplishments that I'm proud of is back five or six years ago, I've, uh, having always been a proponent of entry-level racing, I convinced Beechridge to uh, try the Street Devils thing. Hmm. And we wanted to promote that. And I was trying to figure out how to promote the thing and make a lot of noise about it. And I thought, well, you know, first you've got to build a car. So we'll, you know, if you, you build a car, and then you've got to promote this idea. So I came up with the idea, go racing for 10 bucks. And we set up a raffle for the Maine Vintage Race Car Association. And that had the joint mission of promoting the Street Devils division mm. and uh, turned out to be a big um, fundraiser. Yeah. something that I'm real proud of, which it, uh, it there were over $6,000 in ticket sales. And one of the reasons why it was so successful was because I said, you know, if you and I and, and Joe the three of us try and sell all of these tickets we'll never collect any money so uh, uh, Beechridge paid for the tickets and I said order a lot of more tickets than we think we can sell the raffle was set up you could win this Chevy Cobalt 
Street Devil race car, or you could choose the $1,000 cash. And so they had the drawing, and lo and behold, anyone who has ever ever went to Oxford in the, in the good old days and went through the pit gate, and Marvin Galarno was there. Marvin raced there, and of course he was yeah. a long time on the pit gate, won the, the raffle, chose the $1,000 option, and then very generously gave 500 back to the main Vintage Race Car Association. So that added 500 to the uh, number of tickets that we had sold. And then Zach Audette, who is a, a pretty well-known Central mm-hmm. Maine racer, ended up buying that car in the auction. And as it was, we raised over $7,000 for the Maine Vintage Race Car Association. So that was a good thing, and, mm-hmm. and I was proud of that. The Street Devils were... Are, 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 were a victim of COVID. Um, we had just gotten the thing to where the field was on the verge of being enough, and COVID came, and the speedways, of course, had those terrible years and uh, with low car counts and everything, and they did not get picked up again for the 2021 season, which was a shame, but mm. then... It doesn't matter now. We get a lot of people on Open Trailer Podcast who are Mainers. Mainers through and through. They've been here for generations. But that wasn't your case. You're not even from America. I, I was born in in uh, St. John, New Brunswick, Canada. Uh, and that is uh, about a 45, 50-minute drive from Callis, Maine. Hmm. When I was six years old, my father got a job on the St. Lawrence Seaway Project in northern New York. And uh, we moved there for his work. Mm-hmm. And when that job was over, we moved to Greater Boston. That's how we ended up in Woburn. And we were we didn't have any money in Canada. We, we weren't very well set at all. And, and, of course, my father with a union job here in America, in those days, we quickly became middle class mm. and uh, got our own home and everything was, was kind of cool. And, of course, I had my high school with, with Mike Murphy and that, and my father in 1970 got a contract to do flooring for all of the McDonald's that they were building in, in uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. What was his trade? He's a floor? He was, he was a tile setter. If you look at the floor in my office, yeah, that's a ceramic tile floor. I did that floor because when your father's a tile man... You learn. And that was how I ended up in Maine. He had so much work... I was happily working my way. They had moved to Maine, hmm. and I'm happy living in Massachusetts. Um, and uh, my father kept calling me and saying, I got all of this work, and I can make all of this money. You've got to come up and help me. So uh, I'm coming up here all the time to work for him and, and to do tile jobs. And I, it finally got to the point where I, I shut down the little auto parts business that I had in Massachusetts and, and, and started working for him. But while I was in Massachusetts, one thing happened that was key to the move here. A friend of mine was an electrician, and he had a Greenlee pipe bender. And back in those days, roll cages were made with butt joints that were welded together, and we didn't have that nice uh, bent-up roll cage. So I bought this pipe bender. And when I got to Maine, I didn't have time to race, but in my spare time, because I always like to work 20 hours a day, <laughs> I would fabricate, and I took welding classes to be a better welder, 
and and uh, take this bender and make roll cages. One of the funny roll cages is the 57 Chevy uh, that was Dick Fowler's first race car. Wow. And Dickie was was too young to drive it. Dave Gutter had to drive it. I don't know if Dickie could even get in the piss. He was still in high school. What were your memories of uh, meeting young Dick Fowler? Um, well, okay. Because he's a Hall of Famer now. He obviously owned all the you know the big cars in the 80s and the 90s, and his family has been very successful and head tech guy at Beach Ridge. Yet he started off selling programs at Beach Ridge Motor Speedway uh, when he was in his uh, early teens. How can I describe Dickie? Dickie is what you'd call a really sweet guy who's grumpy. Um, he's extremely focused. Yes. He's, he's got a heart of gold. He's the greatest guy, but he's also grumpy. Hmm. And... Um, he was grumpy as a kid. Was he? And he he had a brother that was a little older that died very young. And his brother was, was Ralph, and he's Richard. However, as children, their nicknames were Ricky and Dickie. The Dickie thing, uh, they were kids. He was in high school. He had this 57 Chevy he wanted to race. Will you build me a cage? So, And I had been friends with Dave Gutter. We had met at star before i moved up to maine and so i think i ended up doing that one for free but for whatever reason we built a roll cage and we went on and i kind of from there moved into uh the crew member thing there was a, a fellow from gorham dale gary and dale's father-in-law was wilbur bell mb born roofing and uh Dale's uncle owned the 19 car that Jimmy McClure was so successful in and uh, they had raced and he was friends with uh, all of the racing people. Dale bought a B-class bomber car as that division was going out. He just turned 71, so he's a little bit younger than I am. Mm. And so he was racing at Beach Ridge at a very young age. And then when the late models came on, he built one of the most significant strangest cars in Beach Ridge, and that was a big block late model. And I was the uh, welder fabricator guy. Richard Emery uh, was the engine guy, and he was really good at engines. And Wilbur Bell, who went on to be a president and director of the uh, Man State Stock Car Racing Association had enough money that we could do what we had to do to put out a good car. Mm. The problem was that the car had a 500 plus horsepower open chamber 427 with aluminum heads that weighed 35 pounds more than a small block. And that all sounds great because um, now you have the most powerful engine. There was nothing at the Speedway that had any more power than that car. What did Goodwin Hannaford have to say about this? Goodwin had the good sense to realize that um, the car was too much of a good thing. Because Dale was a decent driver. But if you hiccuped and moved the throttle an eighth of an inch too much on 500 horsepower, the car was sideways. 500 horsepower on a third mile clay track. And the, the motors were just wild. Mm. And they just made so much power. And I have often said that we probably would have won a lot of races because it, it had torque 
It had way more, 100, 150 pounds more torque than a, than a, a small block. So if you'd put numb gears in it and let it pull and maybe pulled a couple of spark plug wires so you didn't have a whole 500 horsepower, <laughs> you could have. But yeah. it, it was very difficult. And uh, Gary Pulsifer ran a late model along with it. it uh, Andy Lude was running. and uh, But Gary Pulsifer's comment about that big block Chevy was that um, all the time he ever raced, he never had any doubt if Dale Gary was beside him because that car sounded like nothing else that they raced against. How strict were the rules back then? The rules were strange because the rules didn't focus on engines um, as much as they do now because engines were kind of a free-for-all. The, the only... Uh, limits were how many you can only have one carburetor um, and there were expensive gratuitous bolt-on stuff that you couldn't have but you could pretty much do what you wanted with the motors motor limiting didn't come in until the NASCAR brilliant idea to put the smaller carburetors on modifieds to cut down on expenses and I've got a great video clip where Dave Kudermarsh explains the difference between a NASCAR mod of the time with a 390 carburetor mm. and a Beach Ridge mod. And he said, and it's quite simple. We allow a bigger carburetor, a little less restriction on the cams, and things that you can do inexpensively. And we end up with the same amount of horsepower as someone who spent thousands of dollars trying to get a small carburetor to give them more horsepower. In those days, there was no standardization. There was no such thing as a crate motor. Everything was built. Most people built their own motor, keeping in mind now that at that time, most everything was running uh, a final drive of 557, which at the speeds they were running, a late model was, was 6,200 RPM. Mm -hmm. Some of the supers, I mean, Dick Bergen always had motors that would do 8,000 RPM, but <laughs> uh, that was why Dick Bergen was so spectacular at Beach Ridge, because a lot of people who were there don't understand the legend of, of Dick Bergen at Beach Ridge. Dick Bergen didn't come to Beach Ridge to race. He only came to win. And because he only came to win, one week he would be horrible because he tried to change so many things and to do so much. Hmm. And then the next week, he'd set the track record because he, he didn't come to race. He came to win, and he came with fabulous equipment, and Doug Gore was a brilliant... You know, if we look at racing in 1970, one thing that was really significant that happened in, in the early 1970s was a book by Steve Smith, which was the first popularly bought and read book about chassis mathematics and car setup. And that was the transition between a guy like Homer Drew, who drove fabulously, but by feel, and the driver ran everything, give me too much power and some traction, and I'll make this thing go really fast, to the button-down, mathematically towed in correctly, you know, the, the right moment center, all of the, the buzzwords that you talk about in suspension today. Everybody, when we were at Beach Ridge in the 70s, you had a 1,200-pound spring in the right front. 
Now, if you know what you're doing, you don't have any 1,200-pound springs. You have very light springs. You do more with shocks and, and it, because we've learned so much about it. Mm. And, and so, you know, but when you get to a guy like Goodwin Hannaford, here's a guy that quietly in a small place in Hollis, Maine, um, proud of himself that he was 14 years old when he built his first race motor for Beach Ridge. Um, and he was very quietly powerful, and, and uh, uh, he was someone that that the tech people trusted him. If they wanted to know the answer to what can you do and how much does it cost, Goodwin would give them the truth. And but when I was young, hmm, it starts that always goes downhill. When, I, when you say whenever you say when I was wrong, I'm just listening. You're going to say something bad. Hmm. I was in a conversation with. Uh, uh, Goodwin Hannaford, and I had just moved here, so I was 20-ish, and he had said something, and I said, that's BS. And you have to understand that if you're new to Maine, the guy that you need to be most careful of is the quiet one, because they won't tell you that they didn't like what you said. They'll simply uh, work against you pretty mm -hmm. much forever. And, and I really ticked him off. And we had a kind of chilly relationship for the longest time. And, of course, because he was an old Mainer and wouldn't tell you what was on his mind, I had no way to know that I had brashly, just being myself in a big mouth, offended him. Well, you're from Massachusetts, Dan. Right. The, the mass hole thing. <laughs> yes. So, um, it was funny because on Steve Perry's uh, TV show, when Bob Libby passed, and Bob and, and Goodwin were mm. immense friends, um, I did a tribute piece to Bob Libby, who was uh, one of my most heroic figures in automobile racing because of his quality and, and character as a, as a person and what he had to teach you. And... Goodwin was impressed with the piece that I did about Bob Libby and I met Goodwin at one of the car shows and he said sit down for a minute I'm going to tell you a story and uh, I said what's that and he said do you remember in 1971 when <laughs> something 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 happened yeah, yeah. And, and you called me a liar <laughs> and I said well wait a minute I call you a liar he said well when someone looks me in the face and says that's bullshit that's right. a lie yeah. and, and you called me a liar and I've been mad about it ever since and I finally figured that that uh, with what you had to say about Bob Libby, that, that maybe I should probably reconsider and have a conversation with you. And we had a long conversation mm -hmm. about it. And, and it was a great lesson in, uh, you know, as people, we have a tendency to throw these lines to make a point. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it shows you how careful you should be not to spit out something that would offend someone. Because uh, if you offend someone... Sometimes it can last a long time. And I'm going to say that that might have been five years ago. So that lasted 40 years. Yeah. And, when, and I finally, and I was very pleased. And, I, and after that, I, I kept touch, in touch with Goodwin. And, of course, as his health became more of an issue, it was more yeah. difficult. But he was the man that probably built the most winning race motors in Maine from 19... Uh, somewhere around 1970 until uh, maybe 90, 95. And he continued to make winning race 
motors after that. But the standardization thing, the crate motor, once again, um, it's hard to fight that. It's hard to be an independent and work against General Motors if they're going to sell all of this stuff because they have access to the parts and to the processes. But, you know, racing is always a moving target. And in the 1980s, after my uh, head-on collision and I decided not to drive, I was extremely busy at work, and I was a big user of radio for advertising. And back then you had less radio stations, so I could get 60% of the morning drive simply by buying two radio stations. I'd take about seven radio stations or eight to get 60% today because there's so many Mm. different genres that you can have. And so we were a big radio advertiser, so every other radio station, other than those two, sent a salesman here constantly. There was always another radio station that had another salesman that would like us to take a big schedule with them. And nice-looking woman came in one day and said, Hi, I'm from, and it was the radio stations down by Home Depot, that building, which is where we did the main motorsport report. And she said, you don't know me, but you'd know my husband from the races, my ex-husband. I'm Janice Walsh. And it was Eddie's ex-wife. And she said, "Uh, uh, I want to talk to you about a radio schedule, but also while I'm here, I just got a radio show started with Bill Spindler. Bill Spindler, a killer race car engine builder. My friend Harold Hawks from Heron Gorham, who I've been friends with for the whole time I've been here, he, he currently owns the Gorham Country Club. He founded Portland Speed, and Portland Speed got a bigger facility, and Bill Spindler came on board to build engines, and Steve Levitt came on board to build race cars. That's an unstoppable shop. And that was quite the quite the shop, because mm. Harold had the equipment that you needed. He had Stevie Levitt with the, with the knowledge, yeah. and Stevie had driven a bit and really liked driving, but moved over to action racing and there were so many successful uh course tour chassis that were steve levitt cars and then of course he went down south and had a fabulous career building race cars for the stars bill was this formidable engine builder and he went through quite a period where he built uh engines for cars and then moved on to building the uh giant horsepower motors for offshore boat racing Right. So, so Bill is hosting the radio show, but he's not really a radio he, guy. And he really not into it very much, and huh. he doesn't have the time for it. And so she said, you know, well, why don't you come and see? So we did the show together in 86, and then by 87, Bill had dropped out. And we went on and did a couple hundred shows from that point forward. And the crew at the Maine Motorsport Report was an interesting crew because Walter Bell, who was a retired engineer from... From and, and a race car photographer from South Portland was my sidekick and best advisor. But we had a crew of volunteers who came in to help with the radio show. Uh, Dave Sturgis, who mm-hmm. went on to be the flag man at Beach Ridge. Dave Herrick, who had a great career as a driver at, at Beach Ridge. Um, Rich Stipos, who was a friend of mine from South Portland. And... Uh, and Danny Walker was our, our uh, he was our comedy writer. Danny had come on board and decided that he was going to organize me. Well, Danny would be petrified because it wouldn't be uncommon for the radio show to start at 6 o'clock 
and for them to hear the sound of squealing brakes at one minute of six, and I'd come running across the parking lot, run in and sit down and say, and our man in the studio, and you can ask Rob Steele this because he had adored him too, was Chuck Morgan. And Chuck mm-hmm. was one of the best radio production guys in the history of radio. Yes. He was the first guy to have a machine where he had 50 voices. We would have fun, and he would make these things for us. And so he had a donut. He would read the, this is the main motorsport report, and then there would be a block where I would do the sponsors live. And a lot of times you'd hear me doing the sponsors, and I'd be out of breath because yes. I just ran into the room <laughs> and got the headset on in time for the show. Yeah. And... And Danny Walker, of course, he was the resident comedian because he would everything to Danny is 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 pretty juvenile in his jokes at times. After our radio show, which was on for an hour, they went right from our show to the syndicated NASCAR stuff, Eli Gold, and those uh, hmm. kind of national feeds. We had run of the studio pretty much, but they just didn't want us to knock it off the air. Right. So, yes. So we had adult supervision. Hmm. And the adult supervision was a guy from Westbrook named Dennis McLaughlin. And Dennis had lost both legs very close to the hips. And he was probably the most handy, capable guy you'd ever meet because no one could walk on their hands like him. And he was immensely cheerful. Mm-hmm. And he always made fun of us. And, and he would tell me to watch my head so because you're, you're way too tall, you're going to hit your head. And so Walker decides to get back at him one of the segments, the music for it, was the Glenn Miller United States Air Force Band doing the St. Louis Blues March, mm. which sounds like a, a marching band thing. So Walker says, you've got to get back at Dennis McLaughlin. So after that, whenever we went to that segment, I would say, and here's Dennis McLaughlin with the WGT marching band. <laughs> and of course, people at Radio Land didn't realize yeah, that, that we were, walk. this was an inside joke. Yeah. And and some of the things that I, I can't go into them here because right. Walker would propose such off-color stuff for us, but we had some great times on the on the on the radio, and we had great guests. Um, I am in the process of converting those. Yes, from, please from do tapes because some of the people. Um, some of the people aren't alive anymore. Selfishly, I want to hear those tapes because my mother was a huge supporter of that show. Called well, in honestly. It'd be great to hear her voice. We had a call in. We had a listener call in opportunity. And um, there was this one lady <laughs> Boy. way over her head in love with racing from Sanford. Mm-hmm. You might know her. Um, and Walker famously dubbed her our, your number one fan. That was that was. Uh, Don't do that to her, boy. That just that's like taking a leaf blower to a bonfire. So so Walker says to me about the fourth time your mother called. Yeah. He, he says it's your number one fan. Or he held up a note here because there's a glass window in a little small studio. And he <laughs> held up a note. It's your number one fan oh, on line one, and and it stuck with her. Hmm. And of course, um. If nothing, your mother was vivacious, and she was just as... And so we would meet at the races and talk, and, mm. and, and we had... It was, for me, it was very empowering, because I could pick up the phone, and Tom Curley would drive down from Vermont mm. to be on our show. That's where I met him. And, uh, uh, you know, 
people, uh, Dave Dion would drive up from New Hampshire. Um, uh, we just had people come from all over the place, and uh, I was able to make friends with some of the Southern guys because we would go up to report on the, on the Oxford 250, and one of our guys that called in a lot was David Pearson's son, Larry. And Larry was running the Chattanooga Chew late model car at the time. And, uh, you know, and you would have these guys' home phone number and you'd call them and say, hey, can you be around at 7 o'clock on, on, or 6 o'clock, 6.30 on Tuesday and we'll call you and find out how you're doing down there in NASCAR land and, and have a conversation with them. And it, you just ended up meeting mm. so many cool people. Now, in stage number two, remember when I said we can bring up Exhibit A, Story A, and there'll be 10 different versions of something we may have already talked about on the podcast. The infamous NASCAR North split, which gave us ACT in the mid-80s. This has been covered on the podcast before, but I don't know if it's been covered the Dan Wolf way. LaJoy protested it to NASCAR, and NASCAR overruled Curly. And Curly was a nice enough guy, but he was Irish enough that if you overruled him and embarrassed him, um, you weren't going to be friends anymore because Irishmen can be very prideful. And so that was what caused the fact. And Curly said, the heck with you guys and proceeded to go non-NASCAR and go his own way because he wasn't going to be rebuked that way in public. And so NASCAR didn't pull out. It was Curly that took the sanction. It was it was it was Curly's actions that caused NASCAR mm. the it, it just turned into a nasty divorce after the Joy lawsuit. That's next time out on Open Trailer Podcast. Thank you for the support and have a good one. <laughs>